Uh, if you have a copy of Scripture, open with me to Jonah chapter 2. We are continuing our series on Jonah. So last week, if you were with us, we began our uh, very short series. We could have gone a lot, a lot much. Uh, we could have gone a lot longer. We we did this series, a short series on the book of Jonah, which is this beautiful book, this very powerful book, a very complex book. Um, and this this book is um, it's it's very mysterious. And what you see is um, a book in which God is pursuing a wicked nation, and in which God is pursuing a, a very rebellious prophet. God is going after this guy with an overwhelming, uh-oh, I hear the phones. We see God going after uh, this wicked nation, this rebellious prophet, and he's doing that with a, uh, an overwhelming and undeserved mercy. It's almost, it's almost confusing to us as we read this book why and how God is so merciful to, uh, to the Ninevites, to the Assyrians, to even Jonah himself. And this story begins uh, by introducing us to this prophet Jonah. And some of you guys know the, school, the, the story from Sunday school. Jonah was called to go to Nineveh. And Nineveh, we, we talked last week about how wicked and corrupt um, and very violent that city was. Nineveh was a city in uh, the, the country of Assyria. And the Assyrians were, a, were an enemy state to the people of Israel. They were a terrorist nation. Now, Jonah, of course, if you know the story, Jonah disobeys God, and instead of going to Nineveh, where he was called, Jonah boards a ship to Tarshish, which is a city 2,500 miles in the opposite direction. He was trying to get a far away from what God wanted for him as possible. And it says repeatedly in the text that Jonah is, uh, and this is terrifying language, Jonah, Jonah is fleeing the presence of the Lord. That's what he's trying to get away from. He's fleeing the presence of the Lord. And as a result, it says the Lord, it was the Lord who did this, the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea. He caused this this terrible storm, a mighty tempest, so much so that the ship threatened to break apart. Now, while Jonah is on the ship, there are these pagan sailors, and they are terrified in the midst of the storm. They aren't sure what to do. They all cry out to their gods, pleading for mercy, but to no avail. The storm continues to rage. And so they begin to hurl, hurl their cargo over the boat to try to lighten the load. All the while, you may remember, Jonah's asleep in the innermost parts of the ship. And, and finally, the captain goes to Jonah to wake him up, and he pleads with Jonah, pray to his God. If, if nothing else, we need all that we can get right now. We're all praying. Nothing is happening. Maybe you can pray and save us from this disaster. And the sailors end up um, casting lots to determine uh, on whose account this evil has come upon them. And of course, the lot falls on Jonah. And so Jonah finally says, throw me overboard. I've rebelled against God. I'm I'm running away from him. Throw me overboard and the storm will cease. Not knowing what would happen once overboard. And the sailors are actually very, very merciful in the story. And even as Jonah tells them, throw me overboard and the storm will cease, they try everything else that they can do to save the ship. They throw more cargo overboard. It says they row harder and harder. But in verse 13 in chapter 1, the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. 
They couldn't work their way out of this. Eventually, exhausting all other options, they throw Jonah overboard, and immediately, it says the storm ceased from its raging. And then very unexpectedly, in verse 17 of chapter 1, this would be as uh, unexpected to the first readers of this book as it is to us, and it says, the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. That's not what we were expecting in this story, but that's what is happening, that as Jonah is thrown overboard, the storm ceases completely, and the Lord appoints a great fish to swallow Jonah up, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish for three days and three nights. And this is where we pick up our story today in Jonah chapter 2. It says in verse 1, Then Jonah prayed to the Lord, his God, from the belly of the fish, and he said, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. You cast me into the deep. You cast me into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me. All your waves and billows passed over me. I said, I am driven away from your sight, and yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. Jonah says in verse 5, the waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. The weeds were wrapped around my head. I was at the roots of the mountain. I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. And yet, Lord, you brought up my life from the pit. When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord and my prayer came to you. You heard it into your holy temple. In verse 8, those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you, O Lord, what I have vowed I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah up upon dry land. God, again, we thank you for your mercy. We thank you for your mercy in this story. God, to to the sailors, to Jonah, to the people of Nineveh, God, you are a merciful God, a God who pursues us. God, I pray that we would remember that this morning. I pray, uh, God, no doubt there are people here who are uh, running away from you and from your presence and from what you may be calling them to, God, and I pray, um, I pray that they would hear your voice. I pray that that all of us will be drawn to a place of prayer and submission and humility, and we would give ourselves to you. God, be with us now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, as we read this story, and especially as we read this prayer, this is sort of the first insight that we get into the mind of Jonah. This is a man at rock bottom. Literally. Literally. This is a man at rock bottom. The text even uses very evocative language to communicate this idea of rock bottom. Jonah prays that the water's closing over him. They're taking his life. The deep surrounds him. The weeds are wrapped around his head. And this phrase, I love this phrase, at the roots of the mountain. You you can't get any lower than the roots of a mountain. And yet this is where Jonah finds himself. Jonah has rebelled against his God. He has, his sin has brought uh, life-threatening consequences to those around him. 
And then in this, in this failed attempted suicide, as he sinks further and further and further down into the depths of the sea, he's saved. He's saved. And he's saved in the most unexpected way imaginable. He is saved by being swallowed by this monstrous sea creature. And now, finally, he prays. He prays. It's clear from the text as we read this that, that Jonah was in, a, he was in a bad place. Maybe you've been there. Jonah was in a bad place. He uses the language that he was in, he was in Sheol, which is a, a word that comes up very often in the Old Testament uh, especially in books like the Psalms. And uh, there's actually shades of meaning to the word Sheol, but it, it conveys this idea of about as far away from the presence of God as you can get. The place of the dead, the place of divine punishment, as, as far away from him as you can be. One writer says that for Jonah to speak this way, of already being in such a place, though alive, it expresses this overwhelming, extreme anguish and pain. Rock bottom. When the passage actually says in the Hebrew, when it talks about this great fish, I learned this this week, I'd never heard of this before, but that, that same word that it's used for great fish uh, in Hebrew, it's, it can convey this idea either way of a whale, which is often how we think of it, right? We talked about that last week. But it can also convey um, the image of a very large shark. That, that puts a new terrifying spin on this story, right? When it says three days and three nights, this is, this is uh, meant to make clear that when you hear that phrase and you hear this uh, related to Jesus as well, when it talks about three days and three nights, that means long enough to be definitely dead. This man was at rock bottom. In, in fact, in, in the Psalms, throughout the Psalms, really, uh, the writers will use this language of, of drowning or being in the sea as a sort of all-purpose statement for terrible misery. And this is where Jonah is. Church, there is, there is nothing like a storm to break us. There is, there is nothing like a storm to uh, remind us of our dependence on the Lord. There's nothing like a storm to draw us to Him in prayer. That's one of the privileges of uh, being a pastor uh, is that you get to spend a lot of time with people in, in some of their most hurt moments and some of their darkest moments. And yet you see, even in that pain, and that pain is serious, that pain is severe, it's real. And yet in that pain, even in the pain, God uses that to draw people to himself. And yet here, it's interesting. Here, even the storm couldn't draw Jonah to prayer. Do you see this? Even the storm doesn't draw Jonah to prayer, at least not in this story. It took a complete surrender. It took him throwing himself overboard and drowning to the bottom, him thinking he was dead, no prayers. But when he was swallowed up, in this overwhelming act of mercy from the Lord, it was that that allowed Jonah to pray. When you read this prayer, one writer says, keep in mind that when Jonah refers to the, to the, the distress of the past, he means the time he spent in the water, not the time he spent in the fish. 
The fish is his salvation, right? He assumed there's nothing else for me now. I am sinking in the middle of this terrible storm. There is utterly no hope for me. But hope came for him in the form of this fish. It says, the water is the threat of death, but the fish is the refuge of salvation. The cry of distress is past tense in the water, but the voice of confidence, the voice of thanksgiving, is in the present, in the fish. This this terrible experience, this terrible experience in this fish is a grace of God. It's a grace of God, in fact, that prevented a deeper and more profound suffering in Jonah's life, including the suffering of death and attempting to flee from the presence of the Lord. This fish was his salvation, and Jonah knew it. And so Jonah prayed. Jonah prayed this prayer of thanksgiving. This, this was a prayer of a man in extreme pain, and yet from the belly of a fish, he, he exalts in the Lord. He's thankful for God's mercy. He doesn't know what's going to happen next, right? He doesn't know what's coming. All he knows is, uh, it seems like you're giving me one more chance, God. I would have never expected this, and it's terrifying, and it's scary, and it's uh, sort of unexpected and unexplainable as being in the belly of a fish is, at least I'm not dead running from you. I'm at the bottom. I'm at the roots of the mountain. Jonah confesses that he called out to the Lord, and the Lord heard him. The Lord answered him. The Lord responded to him. When Jonah was certain that all was lost, the Lord intervened and the Lord saved him. He wasn't looking for salvation. He he had no expectation of salvation in this moment, and yet God saved him. You know, as you're you're reading this prayer, though, there's this, um, and you you probably picked it up even in those short few verses, there is a a really powerful tension in this prayer, in, in Jonah's prayer, as there often is, right? When we're, when we're most honest in our prayer, there's usually a pretty severe paradox or tension. We're, we're so thankful to God and we, we're desperate for him and then we're kind of mad at him and we think he's left us, right? And that's what we see here with Jonah's prayer, this, this profound honesty, really. He's praising God for hearing him and delivering him. And yet at the exact same time, he says, uh, God, it was you who cast me into the deep. And he knows it. God, it was, it was your waves that crashed over me, your billows that passed over me. Jonah knew that he was driven away from God's presence, and yet he says, I, I will again look at your holy temple. I've got my eyes fixed on this holy temple. He says, I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever, and yet it was you, Lord, you who brought up my life from the pit. You see, church, the Lord allowed Jonah to experience, and this is important for us to understand, the Lord allowed Jonah to experience the consequences of his disobedience. He allowed Jonah to experience the consequence of his his disobedience, of his rebellion, and yet it was the Lord who saved him. One writer put it this way, it is when a person comes to acknowledge his or her sin and confesses it before God, and experiences those consequences, when God restores this broken relationship between him and his creation, that's the real deliverance, right? 
It's not being released from the fish. Being swallowed by the fish was Jonah's deliverance. Let me give you just a few points of application as we think through this prayer. Just some things for us to think about as we hear these words from Jonah. Uh, here's, Here's one point. That even in your most painful moment, even in your darkest moment, even in your most terrifying moment, in your most disorienting moment, in the most cruel, in the most, when you've been the most wretched, when you've been the most hopeless and the most uh, unexpected situations, God is present with you. He's present with you. He's not forgotten you. You may have forgotten all about him, right? It says there even in the prayer that Jonah had to, he had to remember the Lord, right? He's, he's in the fish and he goes, oh yeah, there, there's actually this, this one who is Lord over the land and over the sea and over the waves. God, you are in control even of this. Even in this moment, God, you are present with me. Jonah, maybe like many of us, he, he tried as hard as he could to run from the presence of the Lord. And yet he could not escape the reach of God's mercy. God came after him. At the depths, God came after him. There's this Psalm 139, uh, this beautiful passage. I'll I'll read verses 7 through 12. It says, "Where the writer says this, Where shall I go from your spirit? Where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to the heaven, you're there. If I make my bed in Sheol, that's the same language that Jonah uses. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand will lead me and your right hand will hold me. If I say, well, surely the darkness will will cover me and the light about me be as night, even the darkness is not darkness to you. I cannot hide from you. Where can I go from your presence? When things are good, God, you are there. When things are bad, God, you are there. When things are falling apart, you are there. Try as I might, I cannot hide from you. He's present with you. And I acknowledge for for all of us that that's both uh, bad news and good news, right? Wherever you are, God is there. He is present with you. You cannot hide from Him. But church, ultimately, that is good news. He is with you because He is a merciful God. Another point here is that, and you see this throughout this book especially, not as much in this passage, but as you see this passage in light of the book, Transformation, church, is a process. That transformation of your heart is often, for many of us, a very long process. It doesn't happen overnight. Jonah is, think about this passage, Jonah is thanking God for his deliverance from drowning. And yet Jonah, did you notice? Jonah never apologizes for his disobedience. There's no, I'm sorry, Lord, for what I've done. I'm sorry for running the other way. There's no, I take responsibility for my rebellion. You don't get any of that. 
There's no, I, I regret my toxic nationalism or God forgive my racism against this people. It's just a prayer of thanksgiving that God has saved him from drowning. This is the same Jonah who would in the next chapter, uh, it says, quote, be exceedingly displeased and angry at God because God showed mercy to the Assyrians. He hated it because he hated them. This is the same Jonah who would still beg for God to kill him because it was better for God to kill him. It was better not to live than for God to show mercy to the Assyrians. And yet here at least, at least here, in this moment, being swallowed by this fish, Jonah expresses this sincere thanksgiving. One writer put it this way, don't disregard, church, don't disregard the partial works of God in your life. If he chooses to transform you and heal you by stages, it is for his good purpose. Some of us want it like that. All of us want it like that. But oftentimes, and we know that's not what happens, right? We experience bits of his mercy and of his grace. We, we sense our hearts changing a little bit, our circumstances changing a little bit. And, and sometimes just as quickly, we realize that our rebellion is still there. Our sin is still there. Our anger is still there. But God is working on us. And it says we ought to be grateful for any improvement in our condition. It's a mercy. A fish's belly, this writer puts, is better than the weeds at the bottom of the sea. Many of us want it right now completely. We want to be completely different. We want to get rid of who we were. And that's noble, but the good news is, for most of us, that's a long process. God spends our life sanctifying us, working with us, softening our hearts, changing our attitudes. Of course, there are moments of dramatic change, right? We have those Damascus Road kind of moments as the Apostle Paul did. But for many of us, most of the time, I'm saying this as an encouragement to you. Transformation is a process, as it was for Jonah. But don't disregard the wins. Don't disregard the wins. Don't let the losses that follow the wins shade you in terms of how you think about what God is actually doing in your life. Let me tell you some good news, church. God is gracious to us in spite of our guilt. Jonah is guilty in this story. He's, in fact, he's really done nothing right. Even now, he's not apologized. But God is gracious to us in spite of our guilt. In spite of our guilt. In fact, that's really the only way that God can be gracious to us because we were all continually sinful people. The Apostle Paul writes in Romans 5, God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Jonah was running as far away from God as he could, right? He was running as far away from what God wanted for him as he could. It's not that he turned back to God and God saved him, don't you see? It's not that that Jonah turned back to God and then God saved him. God was gracious to him. God was gracious to Jonah as a wicked and rebellious and unrepentant sinner. Paul again says in Romans 2, it is 
uh, and this is important for us to understand, it is God's kindness that leads us to repentance. You hear that sequence? It is God's kindness that leads us to repentance, meaning that it is not our repentance that produces God's kindness in us. God is kind. God is gracious. God is merciful in spite of our guilt. This is unmerited favor. This is, this is not an earned reward. Here's my last of a few points. God's mercy to us in our disobedience. Hear this. God's mercy to us in our disobedience does not eliminate God's demands on us for our obedience. It's interesting, in the, in the very next few verses in, in chapter 3, Jonah gets vomited out on dry land, and the first thing out of God's mouth is what? Arise and go to Nineveh. He didn't change his mind. This is exactly what he called him to. His, his mercy in Jonah's disobedience did not eliminate that call that was still on Jonah's life. As soon as he's thrown up on dry land, the first words out of God's mouth are, okay, now get up, go to Nineveh. This is still our mission. This is still who you are. This is still what you're called to. What God asks, God requires. What God asks of us, what God demands of us, He requires of us. Just because, just because you may be experiencing relief, some relief now in your rebellion, does not mean that God has changed his mind. doesn't mean he's changed his mind about what he demands from us. He demands our holiness. He demands our obedience. It's required. Let me close with this thought. Twice in this passage, uh, in Jonah's prayer, he mentions the temple of God. You see that there? You see it in verse 4 and verse 7, I'm driven away from your sight, and yet again I will look upon your holy temple. And then in verse 7, when my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you in your holy temple. Jonah acknowledges his guilt, even if he doesn't fully uh, repent of it. He acknowledges his guilt, and yet he longs for a sacrifice to save him, right? He says, I was, I'm driven away from your sight. I acknowledge my sin, but I'm looking to the temple. I'm looking for a sacrifice. I'm looking for some hope for me. His, his hope is not in his obedience, right? His hope is in God's sovereign mercy. Jonah concludes his prayer this way. It's literally with a shout. He says, salvation belongs to the Lord. It doesn't belong to me. It doesn't belong to us collectively. It's not about what Jonah is doing. Salvation from beginning to end belongs to the Lord. While, while at rock bottom, Jonah knows he can't save himself. He didn't send this fish. God sent this fish. He ran from the presence of the, of the Lord. He ran from the presence of the Lord, but now inside the belly of this fish, he is desperate for it. He's desperate for it. He's looking to that temple. He's looking to that sacrifice. He's looking to the mercy of God and saying, that is my only hope. At the heart of the ancient Jewish temple was the Holy of Holies. It's the most holy place. And at the heart of the Holy of Holies is the Ark 
of the covenant. Uh, some of you guys may remember the movie uh, Indiana Jones, and yeah, see, it had a it had a pretty serious role in that movie. This idea of the Ark of the Covenant, this this physical object, it was it was a wooden box, about a yard long. It was covered completely in gold, and it, it contained, among other things, the Ten Commandments, Moses's stone tablets of the Ten Commandments. Now the Ark it could not be touched, right? So they had these wooden poles that people could carry the Ark from place to place, and the lid of the Ark, the top of the Ark, was called the mercy seat. It's the mercy seat. It was constructed of pure gold. It had angels on each end with outstretched wings, just as you can see. And between these two outstretched wings, right there at the mercy seat, was imagined that that's where God dwells. Right there with the law. Right there with the Ten Commandments. In in ancient Judaism, the the high priest, only the high priest, only the high priest, and only once a year could enter the Holy of Holies and approach the mercy seat. And, And on that day, the Day of Atonement, the high priest would enter the Holy of Holies and he would he would he would sprinkle the blood of a sacrifice on top of this mercy seat. The blood of a sacrifice on top of the law. He was making atonement for the sins of God's people. Even at this time, what they would literally tie a rope around the high priest's leg so that when the high priest went into the holy of holies, this most holy place, as he approached the mercy seat, in case he dropped dead from the overwhelming glory of the presence of the Lord, they could pull him out. It's a serious business. In the presence of God, there in that moment, the place of atonement was there at the mercy seat. Where the place where you experience God's presence is where the law and the sacrifice meet. Some of us try to, we try to earn our salvation by our obedience. We try to be really good people. And we feel like God will give us a pat on the back and say, come on in, you're all right. We try to earn our place at the table by our adherence to the law, or at least we try as hard as we can. But then there are others of us who hope God will ignore our disobedience altogether because God is love, God is merciful. It's not about what I do, it's about God and God's love. Both are wrong. Both are wrong. God God requires utter and complete loyalty. He he requires perfect obedience. Remember in the Gospels, it says what? Be perfect as I am perfect. He doesn't just sweep the sins under the rug. He demands loyalty, he demands obedience, he demands perfection from his people. And yet, knowing that his people were broken and sinful, knowing that all of us are broken and sinful and flawed people, he knew a sacrifice had to be made. Blood on top of the law. It doesn't disregard the law, but it requires the blood. Something had to satisfy God's requirements. 
And yet the requirements were still there. The, the, the temple in general and the Holy of Holies in particular, uh, it point to, they, those point to God's otherness, to God's holiness, to God's uniqueness. And at the center, as you, as you enter the temple, um, the first thing that you encounter is the altar, the place of sacrifice. As, you, as, you're coming, as you're making your way toward the Holy of Holies, you're first encountering the altar. You're first encountering the place of blood. You're encountering where the murder must happen. You see, before intimacy with God, sacrifice. Before access to Him, atonement. Before his presence, before access to his presence, a penalty must be paid. Jonah looked to the temple as we look to Christ. He knew his only hope was a sacrifice. His only hope was a substitute. And through Christ, God's presence was no longer associated with just this particular place, this place of the mercy seat, this place of the temple. It was associated with a particular person, Jesus. And so Scripture says that as we are included in Him, that when God looks at us, He doesn't see us anymore, He sees Him. He required Jesus' perfect obedience. He required utter loyalty and adherence to the law. He required a substitute. His sacrifice provided a way for our salvation. His his atonement gave us access to the Father. His his shed blood, church, fulfilled the law on our behalf. And now through Him, though, though we deserve to sink to the bottom, though we deserve to sink to the bottom away from the presence of the Lord, now we can be brought up to meet our God directly. Not because He did away with the law, but because He fulfilled it. Church, look to the temple this morning. Look to the sacrifice. Look, look to the sacrifice above the law. Look to the substitute. Look to Jesus who brought us up from Sheol to give us new life. Jonah says, and we can all agree this morning, salvation belongs to the Lord. Salvation entirely and completely belongs to the Lord.